Hello, friends and movers, and welcome back to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where we're keeping the weird, wonderful, fringe world of movement in and out of Pilates alive and well. What we care about is being human, how we move and are moved by each other, the way we think, feel, and experience this wonderful embodied life, and how we can embrace more fully life's infinite outpouring of tiny joys. It's a different kind of season because we're making our sweet and heartfelt way to the end of this great show, but not the end of our creative outflowings by any means. This season, we're taking you on a powerful and soulful journey through the stages of life through movement from before birth to death. I'm honored, as always, to be in this little boat with my stalwart crew as James Crater and Deborah Colway both lend their brilliance to usher our podcast vision home. And to that end, the beginning of the end. Well, I am I'm really thrilled to be here on the line with one of the people who is most dear to me in my whole life and that is our sweet and wonderful Deborah Colway. Hi Deborah. Hi Chantel. <laughs> Deborah has um graciously agreed to participate in this um last final phase of the Thinking Pilates podcast and many of you maybe are aware that this is our um, fourth and final season. And I've been thinking about this a little bit and it, and it's, it feels not like an ending. It feels like the completion of an orbit. And when I've been just kind of sitting with that as Deborah is taking on her own orbit and my orbits are, shifting and James's orbits are shifting. Um, it feels exciting and um, I feel so grateful to be in this moment, um, especially here with Deborah and about to talk to our wonderful guest. Um, I just feel grateful and to be able to have this conversation and the coming conversations and to have had all the ones that have come before it. And it feels relevant in a way because the theme of this abbreviated season four, and we haven't really given it a name, but it is in its way an orbit um, in and of itself as we will be exploring movement and just the human movement experience as we progress from the very, very beginning our beginnings um, from the embryo all the way to the very end, the last breath. And we have some very poignant um, ideas and themes that we're going to be talking about and some wonderful folks that we're going to be bringing on to explore this orbit with us. So with that, we are very happy to welcome Susan Apotion on to the show, our first show of season four. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. So nice to have you. And it's it makes, I think, for me, the pot a little sweeter. And I, I would probably say for Deborah, too, and I'll let, let her speak to that on her own in a bit, um, that you have a history together of of sounds like 30 roughly 30 years of history and in intertwinement and curiosity and 
Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to see what will emerge from our conversation. Susan is here to talk about embryological development in relationship to movement and then all kinds of other wonderful things <laughs> that I think will unfold. And so I think I would like to just start with one of my very basic um, questions, which is, why does embryology matter when we talk about human development and movement? Why does it matter? Like, what is the point of interest potentially for us as movement teachers and explorers of the human experience through the body? Okay. Well, <laughs> it's a, a little me, question. <laughs> yeah, a little big question. Uh, it, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and um, just acknowledge the dedication to movement that I find in you both, Deborah and Chantal, and in all Pilates teachers that I've met, and, you know, all movement practitioners of every type, you know, the potential of movement to excite us, to enliven us, and to give us a path to grow and develop. And mm -hmm. what I hear from the two of you is that, you know, you just keep deepening and deepening and deepening and using Pilates as a vehicle for that. So um, that's very much how I think of movement and how I experience movement and and have experienced it in the course of my career, you know, starting, you know, with yoga and dance as a young person and and then moving into body-mind centering and somatic psychology and um, now into what I call embodied spirituality. So it feels all very continuous and very precious and rich. And the thing about movement is that it gives our nervous system and our whole being a vehicle for development. Without moving our bodies, we're just thinking and talking about development. We have mm -hmm. to enact it on a behavioral level. And that's always movement, even, you know, even with people who don't think of themselves as movers or don't think about moving. Change happens in our bodies through movement. It doesn't happen even if we're talking about body work. It's not a, a passive thing. Even if we're lying on a table receiving body work, it's moving us and we're learning to move differently. And that means we're learning to be differently. And hopefully it's developmental, it's expansive, it's offering us a broader and broader range of options in our being. So if we recognize movement as intrinsic to all development, then when we ask the question, why does embryology matter? It matters because it's the first movement. Mm -hmm. You know, initially it's the movement of the cells dividing. Then it's the movement of fluid going through a loose body of cells. And wherever the fluid goes, the cells grow. 
and they then start to differentiate. And what happens is because we're humans and we have this capacity to develop that starts at the beginning of conception and doesn't end until we die and perhaps not even then, everything that happens during our development is a potential learning for better or for worse. <clears throat> because embryology is the first movement, the first unfolding of our physical being, it becomes a template. Now, granted, it's a very subtle template, and it's something that many movement people never discover, never get interested in, and then the few that do, it takes a while to get a sense of the energetic signature of embryology and birth and early, early, early development. But even though it's subtle, there's a way where it is a template. So the way that our particular sperm and egg come together seems to form a definite energetic template. So if they come together in an aggressive way, that has a certain effect on our being, on our bodies, and on our movements. It might not surface for a long time, or it might not surface as something recognizable ever. In most people, it mm -hmm. never does. Mm -hmm. But my experience is that it's always there, whether I can discern it, whether the person I'm working with can discern it, whether a group can start to discern it as a group, you know, it may or may not happen. It's a delicate process, but it's always there. So it's like um, a subtle smell maybe where, you know, some people just don't have that keen a sense of smell. But for those that do, you know, they're always like, oh, what's that? What's that smell? So I think for most people, you know, having a child, going through the birth process, witnessing the birth process in others, studying embryology, studying pre- and perinatal psychology, you know, it's kind of like following the scent until you get a sense that you recognize it when it happens. Or, you know, now I'm switching metaphors and I'm thinking like a, a subtle theme in a, um orchestral composition. You know, maybe you have to listen to this piece several times for you, before you go, oh, there's that same theme again. Mm -hmm. Now they're doing it very quietly, it's just the flutes. Oh, mm -hmm. now they're doing it, you know, with drums and, you know, <laughs> it, it knocks you over the head, but it's the same theme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in our bodies, in our movement patterns, a lot of times the embryological template is something where it's always been this way. And, you know, you hit an edge where you, you cannot imagine making this change. We don't know ourselves as this physical being in any other way. It's always been there, you know, even if it didn't happen till late in your development embryologically or after you were born, it still has that feeling of like, I don't remember anything but 
having my pelvis in this fixed, rigid position, let's say. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about embryology is like, you know, that pattern might have come in before we even have a pelvis. You know, but it seems like the way it works is that certain body parts hold certain impressions. So, you know, our pelvises tend to hold impressions of sexuality. So any particular sexual connection that might have happened at your conception, you might be holding that in your pelvis. You know, or for women, something about their gestation and their embryological development, they might be holding in their uteruses. You know, our hearts are so mobile embryologically, so they're kind of at the top of everything above our heads, and then it all folds in, and then they're in, you know, where they are now, it unfolds again, and that, you know, it's almost like the the head has got the heart at its crown and then you fold in and and the head leaves the heart in what we now think of the heart center and then the head rises back up again. And You know, before all that happened, the heart was very much in the center and and it was forming itself around the pulse of the mother's blood flow. So that pulse would carry through the umbilicus into the just fluid body, you know, as a very simple fluid body at that point. And that pulse then forms the heart first just membrane and cells around it. And, you know, so, so then it was completely in the center and then it was at the top and then it was in this upper center. But nonetheless, the heart seems to hold certain kinds of impressions in all of us, you know, things about love and emotion and perhaps spirituality. You know, it's not quite as specific as the pelvis, but it's very powerful. And so what I found in working with embryological memories, perhaps, or pre- and perinatal memories, is all of a sudden I just get a feeling like, oh, this is really old. Mm-hmm. And then I get a feeling, oh, I wonder if this is embryological. And I don't usually introduce that unless I have to. You know, I just hold it as a question. And then maybe somebody says, you know, I'm thinking about this story my mother told me about my birth or my gestation or, you know, I'm thinking about when I had my baby or something may or may not surface that alludes to embryological development or birth in some way, you know, and then I'll pursue it in a more overt, conscious way. But if not, then I'll just pursue it through movement and holding the possibility in my heart. So, like last week, I met with someone and she said her head was hurting really bad and she was having this horrible experience in her marriage and working really hard on it. And I was supporting her neck, trying to release some of the tension where her 
um, head was why her head was hurting so badly. And she all of a sudden, and I had my hand, one hand on the back of her neck and one hand on her forehead, and she was kind of looking for a mobility that she hadn't been able to find. And all of a sudden she goes, is it possible to not get squeezed enough while you're being born? I said, yeah, you know, maybe if, you know, if your parent had some kind of twilight drug or epidural and then the vaginal walls can get a little inert, you're still really squeezed, but you might not have that feeling of active pressure. You know, and she just kind of popped out with that in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. And then I, you know, then I took my hands to the top of her head. I said, do you want me to run my hands down your body? And she said, yeah. And and so I just did it kind of gently at first and, you know, built up to a pretty mild level of pressure. But, you know, that was just a few moments in a session. You know, so that would maybe be an example of when it came up overtly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if she hadn't said that, you know, I I don't know whether I would have changed anything or not. I don't know if I ever would have just said, do you want me to run my hands down your body? And I may or may not have done that. Hmm. So, you know, I just gone on and on, but I hope that that gives you some idea of how I think about embryology as important and pre- and perinatal psychology and how it all fits with movement. Yeah, I think some of the things that rise to the surface for me in my thinking back to some body-mind centering work um one invitation in particular, I remember Bonnie offering, makes me, she talked about the history, right, or the impression, and you're speaking to that, I think, a little bit, too. Like, it's just, it's always there, like, your form and shape in those early moments and days and weeks is there still, and what is a value or what is interesting potentially for taking ourselves back into that impression in order to discover something, you know, in yourself, in your body that you may not have ever been able to access. And it makes me feel like what you're talking about, at least the way I'm translating it, is when we have a rigid, fixed sense of our self, and and I'll stick with body experience because, you know, that's, I think, what most of our audience is invested in, but that if there is a sense of limitation or stuckness or inability to experience change, working into this invitation of like, well, what, what if I could explore or experience my body through the impression of some historical moment where I wasn't this shape, um, what might be revealed. And I remember just this past March when James and I were with Bonnie for several days, um, there was one experience in particular for me where we were asked to think about the 
six cells, uh, the division where there were six cells and that they were existing as um, sections of our current form. So upper left shoulder, upper right shoulder, you know, rib, rib waist, right left, and then like low belly pelvis, right left, and, and working with movement as expressed in these six different kind of cellular pockets and discovering such tremendous interesting things that never had I experienced in terms of the way these areas of my body felt or just the way they were being expressed. I mean, I just, it was so fascinating to discover, you know, identities within these areas of my body that I just, one, that it's like I would never have had that language um, and never, you know, expressed movement through that kind of historical form. And it was really fascinating. I mean, I discovered that one hip is had felt like it had a and one hip felt as if it had a female identity. It's like these of identity within my body and the way that just gave me a, a different um, vantage point to experience, you know, pain I was having in my right hip and a lack of sensation in my left hip. And it was just, so I'm so fascinated by embryology being this lens through which we can see our form differently. Um, and in a way, it's like, it's just imagined, you know, like you just have to imagine it and trust that that's going to lead you somewhere. And yet, if it does lead you somewhere, it's not imagined at all. <laughs> You get you get this really you know you were speaking to this a little bit before Susan this impression like the scent like oh it's subtle and yet I can feel that that was there once it is not my current form but it lives in the history of my form yeah yeah such a beautiful experience when it happens isn't it and. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it takes so much um, experience to be able to open to that level of experience. Yeah. You know, you, I mean, I'm sure you looked around the room at a certain point and felt like, huh, you know, I don't think sure. anybody else yeah. is having this kind of experience right now. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's, so elusive and subtle and yet knocks you over the head when you have it and and then you know you're literally stepping out of a box you know the Mm -hmm. box that you believed to be the limitation of who you were Mm -hmm. you know this is who I am my hips always feel this way Mm -hmm. you know this just always been there and probably always will be and and that's the great thing about thinking about ourselves as continuously developing beings is that, you know, something that, a history that 
is so early and feels so solid and complete can be grown. You can add to it. You can continue developing even your embryological self at any age. Yeah, that's a trippy thing to consider. Yeah. <laughs> There's this um, principle in biology of some species being neotenous and and other species are not neotenous. That's um, neoteny is spelled N-E-O-T-O-N-Y. And um, it the root of it is neonate. So the... Um, the qualities of the neonate, the qualities of the of the fetus and the young child, are continued through adulthood. And mm. so humans are neotenous, and dogs and cats and cetaceans, the dolphins and the whales, and you know lizards aren't. Right. So mm-hmm. lizards just develop to sexual maturity, and then plateau and subsist for a while and then they die. But neotenous species really do have the potential to learn and grow throughout their lifespan. And it's it's magic, you know. It's this magical possibility that sometimes we step into this magical developmental stream and we're growing and we're expanding and, you know, it's like being able to fly. And then other times we feel stuck and monotonous and in the box, you mm-hmm. know. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful thing to find that out-of-the-box experience, however we get it. Mm-hmm. It kind of brings up another question, which is what in your experience, is the link between embryology and embodiment. How does embryology potentially inform embodiment? I mean, that's a very, you know, oftentimes in, uh, you know, we have like buzzwords. We have things that are kind of like mm, exciting and um, fad-like almost, you know, just ideas that are rising to the surface. Um, I think in any any community, in any profession, that's true. And I think that in the Pilates community, I'm certainly, and and I would just say, I'm sure it has to do with the direction in which I am pointed. But you know, it is a it's a buzzword it, more so now in the Pilates community, at least in my opinion, than it has been in the last. 20 years, I think it's something that we're hearing more and more, more and more teachers are getting curious about what that means and if they are and are they teaching, you know, or facilitating a a level of embodiment and, you know, just what is it even, Um, but in terms of, yeah, yeah, what is it? The way I define embodiment is on a cellular level. So cellularly, we can be in a physiologically creative mode or we can be more in a routine, 
somewhat shut down, minimal functioning mode. So it's kind of, you know, more binary. And it used to be that people, you know, were really saying a lot of, I was in my body, I was out of my body. And, mm-hmm. you know, I I would say, you know, it, it's not that simple. That's not helpful to reduce embodiment to a binary set of states. But if we think about it on a cellular level and we say, you know, now the new number of human cells in the body is 37 trillion, um, which is probably more accurate than some of the numbers we had in, in the past. And I think this one's going to stick for a while. <laughs> but anyway, 37 trillion, if we say, well, out of those 37 trillion cells, how many of them are in a creative mode and how many of them are in a habitual mode? And that's how I define human embodiment. If you look at every other creature on the planet, they're hovering close, you know, 90% to 100% embodiment. In in that sense, um, embodiment means that whatever is coming into the organism, whether it's material or um, immaterial, in the case of, you know, thoughts and perception, whatever's coming into the organism is processed with no holds barred and then expressed out with no limitation. So there's a free flow. Energy stuff comes in and energy behavior goes out. Mm. So, for example, you know, you don't see coyotes trying not to fart. (laughs) It's just input, output, input, output. Mm. You know, the coyote's running along, and he feels peristalsis, and he shits out some messy bunch of seed pits, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, that's a very concrete way that we stop our embodiment. We stop our physiological processing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're trying not to belch or fart or smell or you know, sweat or, and, um, but also we're trying not to laugh or cry or Mm -hmm. express our pain or, um, jump up and down if we're in a classroom or Mm -hmm. run away if, you know, somebody scares us. You know, there's so many ways that we stop our embodied flow. And as adults, we've learned to do that. So human adults are unique, really, in their ability to um, put cells into a habitual fixed mode and leave them there for decades at a time. So, so what we right, have, right? Big sigh. Take a moment. I got a sigh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that what we can talk about in the human world is practicing embodiment, growing our embodiment, going toward a fuller expression of who we are and letting more and more of ourselves function creatively, which ultimately is great for 
vitality and health and and certainly for expanding our movement repertoire. But we also don't want to get thrown in jail. We, you know, want to maintain our relationships with other humans, you know, so we're not just, it's embodiment isn't about just kind of going berserk. It's about <laughs> feeling more and more deeply and practicing letting our feelings move through our bodies in effective ways that work for our whole lives. Mm-hmm. So so I don't really, you know, when people say, am I embodied right now? I say, well, there's no embodiment God that will come down and say, yes, that was an embodied moment. Mm-hmm. You know, we just, we're just, opening to ourselves and we're going toward you know i don't expect ever in my life to achieve full embodiment um you know i i think in my good moments you know maybe i get to 90 (laughs) percent and you know on the other hand i don't think most of us that are thinking and talking about this get much below 60% because, you know, if we get too low, we're going to die really, really quickly, you know. So anyway, that's just my way of thinking about it. We don't have a way to measure this yet, and maybe we never will, but um, Mm -hmm. that's how I think about embodiment. And, uh, you know, that's really the focus of my life's work is, embodiment and you know for a long time in the 80s and 90s you know it was just this weird word and nobody else used it and knew what it was and and now it's you know already a cliche and it doesn't mean anything because it's overused so mm-hmm. I'm sad mm-hmm. that that's the case you know I'm I'm not done with the word and yeah I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface so I hope we can move it out of a simplistic cliche and really into the the deep um, deep process of working with the body and movement and and how does it work with embryology? You know, it. I mean, naturally, we embody our embryological and our pre and perinatal experiences. You know. Mm-hmm. Those experiences are embodied. And then what you and I have been talking about is how do we let our understanding of early development and birth and embryological development deepen our experiences so that we could embody other possibilities, like with your left and right hip. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they don't always have to be in those roles. Mm-hmm, right. It's a strong impression that you've been embodying all your life, but now that you've had that experience, there's a little bit more play. And so, you know, I would assume that there are some cells that have been let out of a role that they've been in. You know, certainly we could say some muscular cells that have been maintaining a certain muscle tone, a certain um, filament length, 
And, you know, they're going, huh, I could just shift things a little bit here and and mm-hmm. the sky won't fall in. And mm-hmm. I won't be the same person that I was, that's true, but that's not catastrophic. So, you know, hitting that level of embodiment where we can um, explore the frontiers of something that was set embryologically is a delicate and exciting and, you know, sometimes terrifying and sometimes very gratifying possibility. So I hope that answers your question. Does that, you were asking about the connection between embodiment and embryology. Yeah, it does. And I, I find myself, um, stuck a little bit in knowing which direction to go because I want to, for the, for the folks who are listening, I think what's often useful is to explore a little bit, like, what are the tangibles? What do we do? How do we evoke a greater sense of embodiment through movement, you know, in the folks that we're working with and in ourselves. Like what are the potential tools that May we I can say bring? Something? Yeah, mm-hmm, please. I've been listening and taking notes and kind of in my way, I put things in little circles and categories on my piece of paper and uh, I have so many experiences of all of this um, that has been spoken of. And the thing that keeps, that just really popped for me in these last couple of moments is, uh, okay, so there's an impulse to give the people who are listening something to to go home with or to um, work with for example, and what my experience of each of the things that have been touched on today so far has been the, well, the word support keeps coming up for me. And also, like, time and space, because any of this, in my experience, we can do explorations, we can do exercises, in air quotes, uh, you know, practices, but the place for me where any of this, aside from guidance, has always come from quiet and like considering something and then spending time quietly with myself and, and looking around in there or smelling, <laughs> you know, can I smell it? Can I hear it? Is there a taste? Is there anything in there that is recognizable? And um, is there any familiarity in there? Is there something that's recognizable that calls to me, that interests me, that allows me to have the patience to actually just stay? Like even have to go backwards a little bit, if that's what I really mean to have a place to experience and then consider this next thing. So I don't know how 
lucid any of that was, but I, I want to share one little moment out of so many moments of working with this kind of thing, which was uh, with you, Susan. I had for years and years always had a a need to crack my back in a certain way, like it. I had to do it, and um, I could be walking down the street and I would feel this uh, suddenly like this um, discomfort or a, some kind of a pulse in me, and I I would have to find something like it car or a tree or a fence or something to lean back over and pop my back. And by and the time that I talked to you about it, you know, we by then there was like foam rollers and stuff, so there's always something you could use. And I told you about it uh, I'm sure because of what we were working with in the class and you just said to me, Well, um maybe the next time you get that urge you could just wait a moment and not do it. And even if you could tolerate the discomfort of that sensation for just a moment, there would be who knows what, you know, is what I got from that. And that has taken me so far um, in in terms of am I in the box, am I... And so then what happened, Deborah? Like when you didn't crack your back, what's emerged? Well, I don't remember exactly what emerged back then, <laughs> but I didn't die. I mean, that's the thing. The embodiment thought <laughs> did not come down and strike me dead. I lived. I I was able to tolerate, let's, let's put a name on it, I guess it was like a kind of anxiety or a kind of, itchiness or edginess or nudginess that I I wanted to make it stop. I wanted to, on some level, have a feeling of relief or release. And so it, by not going there, it's been different over the years. But that, to me, was just huge. Like, no, don't. Don't and it, but it wasn't like don't do it as a punishment or don't do it because it's not correct or proper or something. It was just uh, it was like this kindness on some level that my body. There were other other ways. There was going to be another choice. There was going to be something if I could allow something else to arise, and so that's really kind of what I want to say right now. (laughs) So I wonder if it would be helpful, you know, to kind of back up and look at that from an embryological or embodiment point of view. Well, what I was thinking about as you were talking and, and sometimes as Chantil was talking, I mean, I know things about my birth, right? Mm -hmm. And I know things about my life. And um, the energetic component of having to pop something or just get out. Yeah. Um, so I was born prematurely with the umbilical cord around my neck. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've wondered about it a lot. 
so from so yeah and and is the vertebrae like right around your diaphragm yeah so then there's that link in terms of breath and suffocation yeah so you know then there's that d- direct connection to the cord wrapping which you know has a feeling of being cut off from oxygen Mm-hmm. So the diaphragm in terms of the breath and, you know, remember I was talking about that echo thing, you mm-hmm. know, where things, where impressions reside in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of like, I got to breathe, you know, it's like crack that vertebrae right by my diaphragm and then the diaphragm simultaneously over-efforting to breathe or hold our breath or, you know, inhale or whatever, that then would create that subluxation between those two particular vertebrae. And then the pause that you're talking about, Deborah, just being, being present and listening and tolerating then could allow, you know, the pattern to release. So the diaphragm could relax and trust the next breath to come and not feel the fear of suffocation and then not pull those vertebrae out of alignment and then the need to crack is shifted. I was thinking of something, I mean, I'm I'm looking at my notes from the exchange that we had prior to the conversation and there's so many directions I want to go, so many things I want to ask that I think um, to follow this thread just a tiny bit more is interesting to me because to consider embodiment in the way that you're talking about it, um, Susan, gives this moment that Deborah is talking about more purpose for me because in in teaching and in talking about teaching with Deborah and with James and with many people, you know, we're we're often um practicing being quiet and creating space for people to listen mm-hmm. inwardly to what might want to come next from from them, from within them in terms of their movement instead of just Thinking and prescribed, yeah, yeah, and the prescribed, but, and that's why I think some of us have moved away from only working with form as a technique to get right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just very interesting to think that that in and of itself is an allowing of as you say, that like the cells to be in creative mode. I mean, I just, that Mm -hmm. makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. And I feel like how exciting as a person who teaches movement to know that when I am quiet and, and fostering that in the person in front of me to listen, that what I'm potentially really doing is, affording them a return to like a liveliness in their selves that they have mm-hmm. not experienced. It just, it feels sweet and really profound. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. The, the, the thing that I 
you know, I wrote notes coming into this and just a lot of, uh, you know, memories and everything. And then, uh, re, reread your email, Chantel, where you had written your interests. And I, when I think about embodiment or, well, embryology, uh, natural movement, let's say, it's another thing that you talk about, Susan. Um, the thing that came up for me was, well, I wrote not forcing knowing and that our body, it shows us this incredible kindness by being willing to have taken the time to divide all those cells and get together and decide, you know, <laughs> who is going to be the liver, you know, and who is going to take on the other jobs. And I just have always thought of it as just such a beautiful communal effort of the highest order. And that, you know, I, again, kind of maybe something overused kind of way of thinking, but, you know, we actually do have everything we need. Mm. And to continue this endless development. And for me, the poignancy of it all, through having been trained in all these different things, uh, and then where I'm at right now, or have been working with now for a while, is that adult humans, we don't know that, you know. And so we are constantly looking outside ourselves to others to tell us how it should be. Amen, sister. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where we're at with time, but I think we must be getting close. Yeah, yeah, we are. I thought I could um, just briefly um, do, you know, a little guided embodiment practice. Lovely, yes. Oh, people (laughs) will love that. Absolutely. And, And Deborah, you know, what I used to call natural movement, I call embodiment practice now. Okay. So the idea is, you know, really, really simple. It's just listening to the sensations in your body and giving them permission to move and breathe in their own way. And so in terms of your listeners having something to work with, you know, that really I think is the bottom line that the movement practitioner works with their own embodiment Mm -hmm. and then it communicates more effortlessly, you know, to others. Right. And that was shifting from this top-down functioning where our brain's telling our body what to do into Mm -hmm. listening to all the cells, which is our sensations. Sensation is physiology happening in a number of cells at the same time so that we can actually experience it. It's not just one thirty-seven trillionth of our being. It's a, <laughs> a group. So um, just take a moment, all of us, I'll do it too. Let go of your breath if you've been <sighs> holding it. Release it if you've been... 
trying to breathe in a certain way that your brain thinks is good to breathe, just open your mouth and see what happens because the mouth is the servant of the brain. I'm not saying breathe through your mouth necessarily. I'm just saying release, you know, take the guards off duty. Letting go of your breath. I'm feeling the sensations in your body right now. Whatever comes, whatever you're aware of, feel those sensations. And imagine not fixing them, not cracking your back, not stretching the muscles. Just listening to the sensations and giving them permission. How do they want to move? How do they want to breathe? Wherever your attention goes in your body, you feel those sensations and you give them permission to breathe, to move, to sound, to rest, to speak, to feel. And that's the crux of what I call embodiment practice. And I think then that can be a basis for entering a developmental stream and finding um, possibilities that we couldn't access previously. So wonderful. Yeah. Well, Susan, it has been just this such a pleasure to listen to you and to talk with you and thank you so much for sharing yourself with us and with all the listeners who will listen soon and later and much later and years from now. (laughs) Um, I really appreciate the space that this conversation has created for our coming conversations and looking forward to seeing how all of that flows from this moment. And thank you, Deborah, for making it happen. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Susan. I um I'm just really happy right now. Thank you. (laughs) You're both so welcome. Well as always my friends, I hope you enjoyed that delightful episode. It was really eye-opening and powerful for me, and I think for Deborah too, especially as she connected with an old dear friend, somebody who made such a impact on her life as a teacher and a person. And just a real pleasure to be able to share that with you as we kick off this really special series of episodes. As always, even though the show will be officially ending in a few months, we would like to invite you to spread the word and spread the love and give us a review on iTunes and share with your friends and comment on the website and just let us know you're listening. Let us know what you're enjoying, what your questions are, what you're inspired by, what maybe you're challenged by and would like to be in conversation around. James and Deborah and I are all willing and ready to take part in the discourse that our conversations spark. So don't hesitate. 
right now you can get on iTunes and leave a review. We love to hear what you think. And we'd also like to know what you'd like to hear more of as we all launch into the world on our new and interesting and still interwoven paths. If there's something that your movement heart desires to hear about or to know about or to discover, um, we would really like to know that. So reach out to us. You can also email us at thinkingpilatespodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, we would like to take a second to tell you about Momentum Fest. And if you've been a listener for a while, you know that this is one of our absolute most favorite things to support and to let people in on because it's a wonderful new-ish event. Momentum Fest is a celebration of movement for all movers, all people, and it's happening June 26th through 28th in the Denver area of Colorado at the Omni Interlochen Hotel in Westminster, Colorado, which is very conveniently situated right smack between Denver and Boulder. Now, I had the absolute joy of attending last year as a presenter and uh, the first year, the inaugural year, as a sponsor through the podcast. And I just cannot say enough about the joyful, wonder-filled, curious, fun, amazing spirit of this event. And um, we want to encourage you to check it out to learn more. You can do that at MomentumFest.com. Tickets are on sale and they're going fast. We're already past the early bird deadline. And they've got so many yummy, yummy things for you. We've got sessions that will be more about educating and discussing, less about movement moving. And we've got some really awesome pre-conference workshops for those of you who are teachers. But this event is in no way exclusive to teachers or professionals. It is 100% about the average Joe and Jane and you and me getting together to have a good time and move and laugh and be spontaneous and do weird things and go upside down and run around and work really hard and rest really well. Is a really special thing. Something I wanted to share with you, which I think sums this event up for me, or how at least I show up for this event, I was asked recently to give three words that would describe my teaching style, and something very interesting came out, and it feels indicative of how I show up very specifically for Momentum Fest. And the three words were intimate, exuberant, and genuine. And I think that is the very essence of Momentum Fest. If you want to check it out, and I encourage you to do so, go to MomentumFest.com. The event is happening June 26th through 28th in the Denver area of Colorado at the Omni Interlochen Hotel in Westminster. We love it, and we think you'll love it. Pretty much everybody I've met there, sent there, know who's gone there, has been thrilled and not disappointed. So we hope you'll join us for the next episode and continue to take this journey with us. Until next time, breathe deep and teach well. Mm-hmm.